Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 166 of the Sustainable-ish podcast, where the focus is on the imperfect and the action and how we can combine the two to get more people on board with some gentle climate action that they can fit into their busy lives. I'm your host, Jen Gale, and today I have a cracker of an episode for you. But before we dive into that, I wanted to say a huge thank you for the lovely emails, the comments on the podcast episode and the comments on social media sharing your excitement that the podcast is back. I talked a little bit last week about how it can sometimes feel like broadcasting into a void and it was genuinely so uplifting and heartwarming and really helpful to read those emails and comments. So a huge thank you to those of you who took the time to do that. It really is. I can't tell you how much it is appreciated. (laughs) Okay, uh, this episode is going out at the end of what has been a shall we describe it as a tumultuous week for those who pay attention to climate-related news? And in fact, I think even those who don't pay attention to climate news can't have escaped all the U-turns and the general culture war stoking that has been coming out of number 10. It's heartbreaking, demoralising, crushing stuff. And I really wanted to acknowledge that for anyone who is finding it hard at the moment, because you are very much not alone. I rightly or wrongly poured my soul out on a LinkedIn post yesterday and the comments would suggest that it's not just me who is finding it tricky at the moment. So the good news section that I've introduced at the end of the podcast episodes feels even more relevant than ever and please do stay tuned after the end of the interview to hear what's been going right in the climate space. Okay so this week's guest I am hugely it has to be said, over-excited by this one, as I am a total fangirl. One of the slightly less altruistic reasons for bringing the podcast back is that it gives me the opportunities that I would never otherwise get to chat to all kinds of amazing people, including today's guest, Dr Adam Levy, aka Climate Adam. Even if you haven't heard of him, you might well have seen some clips of his very brilliant YouTube videos shared on social media. They are very shareable, uh, very watchable, um, yeah, great ways of engaging people because not only is he able to communicate these big complex issues in a way that us ordinary mortals can understand, he also manages to do it with humour, which as I've said, I think is just such a brilliant way to draw more people in, get people thinking, get them engaged. It's only taken 165 episodes, but I decided that it was about time we did a kind of climate change back to basics type episode going over some of the basic science of climate change. Talking about climate change is one of the most important things that we can do. I will link in the show notes to the brilliant Catherine Hayhoe and her fabulous TED talk around this for anyone who wants to dive into this a little bit more. But what I found doing carbon literacy training is that many of us hold back from having those conversations due to a lack of confidence in our climate knowledge. So I thought it might be helpful to, and, and I asked Adam if he would take us right back to basics, answering what might seem like really silly questions like, what is climate change? And what are greenhouse gases amongst others? And I'm hugely aware that it might well be teaching some of you to suck eggs, but I really do hope that it's helpful. This episode was recorded before all of the latest political shenanigans here in the UK. And 
It was interesting when I was listening back to the episode to edit it to hear Adam's thoughts on the progress that has been made and I would love to hear his thoughts now on the current rolling back of some of that progress. So, I don't know, maybe that's my excuse to get him back on if he's not too scarred by the experience. Oh, and just quickly as well before we dive into this episode, there is one F-bomb dropped and a couple of BSs. I think they are all entirely appropriate, but just wanted to give you a heads up in case you listen to the podcast with small children around and you don't want them uh, picking up that kind of language, then this might be one that you want to listen to on your own. Right then, enough from me. I will be back at the end with some reflections and that all-important good news section. But for now, here's Climate Adam. Enjoy. Hi, Adam. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Um, you're, I've got a bit of a, I have to say, I've got a bit of a fan crush thing going on. Like <laughs> you feel like one of the most uh, famous people we've had on in terms of uh, climate stuff and things. So this is all very exciting. And if I'm fangirling you, uh, please um, forgive me. No, that's um, great. It's good for my ego. Yeah. <laughs> so can you kick off by introducing yourself? Uh, who are you? Where are you? What do you do? So I am Adam Levy. I have a PhD in climate science in atmospheric physics, to be precise. From in abstract Oxford... physics? Sorry, atmospheric physics. Atmospheric physics. physics. I, I mean, some of it is quite abstract, to be <laughs> fair, but <laughs> physics relating to the atmosphere. Also, it's not like, ooh, atmospheric. Yeah, it's yes, specifically yeah, yeah, regarding yeah. the atmosphere. <laughs> um, I no longer do research. I am now a full-time science and climate change communicator and journalist. So I do things like making podcasts and videos about science. And I have my own YouTube channel, which is all about explaining climate change simply and engagingly. And it's called Climate Adam. Amazing. Now, one of the things that I've seen, and I'm sure you've heard it before, is people say one of the issues maybe we've had with climate change is a comms issue is a communication issue so the science is now super clear and the problem we've had is that scientists are really good at doing science and maybe not so good at communicating and you seem to have um be a scientist who is really good at communicating is that quite rare in your experience I mean yeah I guess definitely <laughs> in physics uh physicists are the best known for um talking about um talking about themselves or talking yeah. about their research but this is really a big part of why I decided to shift from research to communication is for me, when I was um, studying atmospheric physics, I met so many amazing researchers doing such incredible research. It became clearer and clearer to me that the gaps that I wanted to fill and some of the biggest gaps weren't in the scientific understanding, but they were between what we already understood in the science and the public conversation or yeah. the political conversation. And that gap feels quite big a lot of the time. And that's one of the reasons I really wanted to get you to come onto the podcast, because I feel like awareness around climate change is probably as big as it's ever been. Um, but sure. maybe there's people out there who are like, oh, yeah, if you if you said to them, right, okay, come on then, what is climate change? You'd be like, I don't really know. But we don't want to sort of stick our hands up and go, I don't really know because we feel like we should know and we feel like everybody else knows and everybody else understands but probably there's lots of us who maybe aren't that clear or who um uh and, and I think maybe this becomes an issue as well when we see a little bit of misinformation or maybe even a little bit of denial because we don't feel like we've got the confidence and the knowledge to kind of not even get into an argument but just just gently push back on some of these things is that been your experience as somebody trying to to get a little bit back to basics maybe 
Yeah, I definitely feel like a lot of people are scared when it comes to climate change and talking about climate change. I mean, in the first place, it is a scary topic, but mm. also it is a really big and complicated topic. And I think people are scared of getting things wrong and having their heads bitten off. Yeah. And so that's definitely uh, something I always try to do. Um, if I feel like someone's asking a genuine question and wants to learn something, you know, really helping them along with it, even if it's, you know, a naive or silly question. Yeah, um, yeah but I, I definitely understand that people aren't sure maybe how to start thinking or start talking about climate change. And as you've already alluded to, it's so important that we're all thinking and talking about climate change. So anything I can do to help people on that journey feels really fantastic. Yeah. And one of the things I've um, started doing in the last couple of years is carbon literacy training. And I think even as somebody who, you know, has has worked loosely in the field for like 10 years or so, there was still some of the like real basic stuff. And I was like, you know, I was sort of almost, um, you know, I did my I became carbon literate and then did you know and so then I was like oh oh okay now that makes sense and and one of the things the themes that runs through the course I run is this the importance of talking about climate change and when I say to people okay like what stops you for so many people it is that feeling like I don't know enough who am I to be speaking up I'm not an expert all those sorts of things so really hoping that today we can just do a kind of like climate change 101 just go over lots of the real sort of basic stuff it might be teaching some people to suck eggs and that's absolutely fine it's good to go over this stuff <laughs> but for some people it might be like oh oh like that that makes sense now so um I have a bajillion questions for you but let's <laughs> and I sent you a very long list and you went wow that's well, a lot of questions <laughs> ambitious for the, the time we've allocated for it I feel like I, I can only give you three words for each question yes exactly especially how much I I tend to talk in between so um right really probably the basicest of basic questions what is climate change so climate change the way we use that phrase in general refers to all the different ways that uh we're seeing changes in weather patterns across the world caused by humans over the last around 150 years is really um, the kind of period we're talking about. So uh, the most famous of those changes is what we call global warming, which is the fact that the whole planet is getting hotter. But there are a whole host of other changes that we're seeing uh, to weather patterns, to the climate. So that could be things like sea level rise, that could be melting mountain glaciers, that could be changes in extreme weather patterns. All of these things fall under the umbrella of climate change, and all of these things are being driven in their changes by human activity, things like burning fossil fuels and chopping down trees. Okay. What's the difference between climate and weather? So weather is what we see kind of day to day. And we know in places like Germany, where I'm based or in the UK, where you're based, that that can change rapidly day to day or minute to minute even. Climate is much more the big patterns in that. So that's things like summer is hotter than winter. Uh, Spain is hotter than the UK. Mm -hmm. These kind of bigger scale patterns that we see. And so when we talk about climate change and for example, predicting climate change, we're not saying, oh, the weather on the 7th of July 2050 is going to be snowy in Brighton. Of course, we, we don't have that kind of information. Uh, the kind of things we're much more studying and understanding is, well, if we continue what we're doing, summer in the UK is going to be hotter in 20 years time on average than it is at the moment. And 
the kind of heat waves we're getting today are going to get more severe. They're going to happen more often. So these kinds of general statements um, describe our understanding of climate change. Okay. And this is probably another super basic question. Why does it matter if the climate changes? Because you, 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 you must have come across this before. Like you will get some people, especially if you use the phrase global warming, in somewhere like the UK, where traditionally it's maybe we don't have the best summers and all that sort of thing. And like, bring on a bit of global warming. I would love it to be warmer over the summer. Like, so why does it matter? Well, here's just one example. We're seeing heat waves already across the world taking place more often and more severely because of climate change. And actually climate scientists have found out that every single heat wave we're seeing at the moment, and this will only get worse as we continue to heat the planet, is made more severe and more likely because of climate change. Well, as you say, some people might say, oh, but you know, a bit of heat, that's a lovely thing. Well, the heat waves in Europe last year cost tens of thousands of lives. And this is in Europe, a relatively temperate climate with relatively wealthy countries. Extrapolate that, you know, as we continue to heat the planet and think about how that will affect countries which are already hotter and already struggling to, to get by and, for example, struggle with more severe poverty than we do in Europe. And you can begin to see why this is a really important human issue across the world. And we might be sort of diving a, a bit ahead too quickly, but it just seems to follow on from, from what you've said. So anyone who's being a pay, been paying attention to the news over the summer, like there have been horrendous extreme weather events all over the world. However, in little old Blighty, weather's been a bit shit. Like, do you know what I mean? It's been been a bit, it's not been a great summer. And so last summer where we had that extreme heat and we had those heat waves, it, it felt like people in the UK were joining the dots a lot more. Um, like it, do you find I guess it's not weird but like we're very impacted on our perception I guess of how much of an issue climate change is by how directly it's impacting us so a what's going on with the British weather and um b yeah it is that true that people are more inclined to take more action when they're directly experiencing the impact of it I think people are more and more, as you say, joining the dots and when they're exposed to these kinds of extremes and climate scientists can point out the links between those extremes and the big picture of climate change and burning fossil fuels. I think that really helps people understand that climate change isn't this kind of abstract theoretical question. It's something that does exist in our backyards. At the same time, as we've already alluded to, climate is about the averages. It doesn't mean winter is going to stop existing. It doesn't mean every summer is going to be a scorcher. Um, and so you are going to get pretty rubbish summers still in the UK. The UK isn't going to stop being the UK, unfortunately, in that <laughs> regard. Um, and I think that can um, sometimes uh, disconnect the dots, mm. as it were, for some people. And definitely there are some people there who really don't want to believe in climate change and use that kind of thing as an excuse not to believe in climate change. The important thing to bear in mind is, uh, I guess, the first word in global warming um, is global. You know, the whole world is getting hotter, but that doesn't mean every bit of the world is hotter all the time. Okay. Yeah. So, and and it's, I don't know, I always find this really difficult and you might have some lovely, amazing way of explaining it. Um, for some reason, I don't know why our human minds find it very difficult to empathise with stuff that's not happening directly to us. So 
as kids, we have quite an inherent sense of kind of it's not fair, all that sort of thing. And and when you try and explain sort of, you know, this elements of like climate justice and the fact that, you know, we're the ones pumping out all these emissions and yet people with much, um, much lower emissions and having much lower impact are the ones being impacted. But that still doesn't seem to and it makes us feel bad, but it doesn't seem to really die, um, make us change our behaviours like psychologically. Are we just not set up to adapt to this? There's been a lot um, talked about about how it is a really difficult problem to get our heads around, not just because uh, we often feel like it's happening far away, Mm. maybe far away in another country, or we feel like maybe it'll happen, you know, in decades time. Although I think we're finally beginning to get better at how we talk about it and reminding people actually know it is happening right Mm. now in, in our backyards. You know, it is the extreme weather, the heat waves we're already seeing today. Um, but on top of that, it's a hard thing for us to get our heads around because there's also a lot of misinformation out there around it. Um, I think a lot of the ways we talk about it can be quite clumsy at best or actively misleading at worst. And so I, I can definitely understand why people maybe feel disconnected from the issue at times. Yeah. So speaking of misinformation... I'm sure probably one of the most common common things that you get as someone who tries to communicate this is the climate has always changed. Like we've had ice ages, we've had warmer periods, all that sort of thing. If if we're saying, and we are saying, the science is incredibly clear that the, the climate change that we're seeing at the moment is human induced. Why is the climate change previously when we weren't doing what we're doing now? Yeah, so studying past climates is actually really, really important, um, I guess, sub-discipline of, of climate science. And actually, it's told us a huge amount about what's happening today and what could happen in the future. But you're absolutely right. There have been climate changes in the past. Um, so, for example, what we call um, ice ages and the shifts between them and relatively warmer periods. So those shifts between ice ages and relatively warmer periods those were triggered by shifts in the Earth's orbit. Um, lots of people might have heard of Milankovitch cycles. What we don't learn in geography at school is that there was a lot of controversy about Milankovitch cycles. And actually, when you kind of did the maths of how much extra heat you'd get and where you'd get it, it didn't really explain what we are seeing in the Earth's distant temperature records. And for a long time, climate scientists were pretty stumped as to like how they, these orbital shifts could have created this pattern of warming and cooling we see over hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years in Earth's past. Until they dug up ice records, which revealed how carbon dioxide had changed in parallel. Um, And actually what happened was carbon dioxide served as a natural amplifier for these orbital changes. And so this is often used as a kind of gotcha, you know, like, oh, the climate's changed before. And it's like, yes, we know that because climate scientists went out and found that out. But we also know that carbon dioxide played an absolutely vital role in those changes. Plus, of course, now we have the technology to check, oh, is there some change happening in Earth's orbit that could explain what's happening in the climate? Are volcanoes going off like crazy to explain the the changes we're seeing? No, none of those things explain the temperature changes we're seeing today, which, by the way, are happening around 20 times faster. That's 20 times faster than the rate of change as we left the last ice age. So there's so many things which are particular and peculiar about what we're doing to the planet now, which set it apart from these changes we've seen in Earth's past. So just to get, um, as someone who didn't do geography 
even at GCSE and who hasn't done atmospheric physics at PhD level. Um, so the, the Earth tilts on its axis and that means that it's like a bit closer to the sun or can can and that's what causes a bit of warming and then you said that carbon dioxide acts as a, a sort of amplifier there so what's the i just can't get my head around the sort of mechanism that that how does so what links the orbit there? to the carbon dioxide mm. so there are a whole host of activities there are things like the amount of ice cover in the northern hemisphere which um basically dictates how many plants you can grow and of course plants absorb carbon dioxide right. from the atmosphere the temperature of the oceans dictate how much carbon dioxide they release or absorb and then on top of those things you have things like a dustier planet which kind of amplifies um a lot of these changes and so there are a whole host of uh processes which link these subtle shifts in earth's orbit to how much carbon dioxide ends up in the atmosphere Okay, and the more carbon dioxide there is in the atmosphere, that this is where we get um, this exacerbation of the the greenhouse effect that most people probably will have heard of, and that's what sort of traps more heat in and makes things warmer. So carbon dioxide is an example of what we call a greenhouse gas, which is basically kind of an an insulation of the Earth's planet. Uh, what we often leave out is that carbon dioxide is actually a really good thing. If we didn't have any carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the planet would be way too cold for comfort. Um, it would be a very bad thing if there's no CO2. Plus, plants wouldn't be able to photosynthesize. Um, that's from GCSE biology. <laughs> I'm just like going through the subjects now. Um, and... So carbon dioxide, great that it's in the atmosphere. What's not so great is that uh, we've increased the levels of this insulation um, over the last 150 years to levels they've not been at for millions of years. Um, and so, yeah, in just just over a century, we've we've done what's really been unprecedented in this huge, huge length of time. Um, and as carbon dioxide is this this insulating gas. Well, you add to the insulation, the planet gets hotter. Okay. So what what are current carbon atmospheric carbon dioxide levels? So you don't I, need to give it to me to the day. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I was about to you saw me move towards my keyboard. Um so I think we're I mean we're over four hundred parts per million um levels of carbon dioxide. In in comms terms, when we talk about 400 parts per million, so that's 400 molecules of carbon dioxide for every million molecules of atmosphere. And so I can I can understand why people go, really? You're telling me that, you know, 400 out of a million is is making a big difference. Do you think that's part of the comms piece we've had? I, I definitely think that probably sounds quite low, but I can tell you that if I offered you a glass of wine, which was 400 parts per million arsenic, you really shouldn't drink it. So, I mean, me yeah, I think you definitely not enjoy that glass of wine. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it, it sounds small, but, you know, small things ha can have big effects. Yeah. Okay. Um, and the last time carbon dioxide levels were this high, I, my, my um, as well as not being very good at geography, my, you know, history is bad. So my, my, timeline of human history where do we fit into that were humans around last time no we were not around i think uh i think our ancestors around the last time carbon dioxide levels with this high might have been australopithecus 
who are um, very cute looking um, human ancestors. Um, okay. I think they were around around the time carbon dioxide levels were yeah. around this kind of level. But most of human civilization and development in terms of things like writing, buildings, agriculture, mm. these things have mostly taken place actually since we left the last ice age in a period for around 10,000 years or so where the climate has been really pretty stable. So we've had the the privilege to develop our society mm. and our ecosystem and our cities and all our um, forms of knowledge in a period where climate has been really relatively stable. Um, and so the idea of changing that very quickly, which is what raising the carbon dioxide levels very high, very quickly would do, is doing. Um, yeah, that that um, that's something we're just not in any way uh, ready for, adapted for. And how long would we normally expect sort of stable periods of temperature to be in between ice ages and things like that? Uh, so of order, um, ooh, that's a really good question. Um, <laughs> I've stumped you, yay! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm not a paleo uh, paleoclimate scientist. I'm much more interested normally in the present day and in the okay, future. Yeah. But um, I would say orders tens of thousands of years. So I'm trying to think the last one, we left the last ice age around 15,000 years ago. Um, then the previous interglacial was like 150,000 years ago. So okay, dividing by yeah, two, yeah. it's like something like 70,000 years for so like the cold really period. Expecting, if this was natural, we wouldn't really be expecting natural, the climate to be changing naturally at the moment and be it as you said it's happening 20 times faster than than um natural changes have happened in the past the changes we're seeing really stand out like a sore thumb in mm. the in the geological records um not only because of the rate they're happening but actually over the last 10 11 000 years what we've seen is a very gradual cooling um and so what we've seen over the last 150 years has really reversed that gradual cooling trend so that's why you get people going back in the 70s. We were told we were going into an ice age. Well, actually, in the 70s, there's a lot of studying of aerosols and the fact that aerosols cool the climate, which they absolutely do. Um, so when you say aerosols, mm, most of us are probably thinking hairsprays, deodorants. Yeah, which absolutely are aerosols, but they're also um, all sorts of tiny little droplets and particles, some of which come from natural things, for example, fires, um, although of course fires can be human caused mm. or human exacerbated, um, but also come from, for example, car exhausts or spray cans and all, all yeah. different sorts of things. So um, this kind of air pollution, these droplets, these particles in the air reflect the way sunlight and effectively cool the planet. And there's a lot of study of that in the 70s. But even in the 70s, there was more than six times more research on global warming than there was on, on global cooling. It wasn't getting into the headlines as much. There was less reporting on it. But climate scientists have um, have been researching the heating power of greenhouse gases actually for a very long time. The greenhouse effect dates back. The, the, the first scientists kind of look into that around 200 years ago. So it's sometimes spoken about as if it's some kind of new theory, mm. new science. It, it really isn't. Okay. So we've mentioned one uh, one big greenhouse gas already, which is carbon dioxide. Are there other greenhouse gases and what are they? There are loads of greenhouse gases. I definitely couldn't name them all. <laughs> what um, are the main ones? The main ones that people should think about are methane, 
and water vapor. I would say those are the biggest ones everyone water should. Water vapor, see, that'll be a real about. surprise to, to lots of people. We do this in carbon literacy, and I and I and it's always the last one that people are like, water? What? Water? <laughs> it's just water. Yeah. Um, so water is actually in terms of how much it insulates the planet, the biggest greenhouse gas. Uh, the thing about water vapor, though, is that the atmosphere can only hold so much of it. Um, and if you try and shove more into the atmosphere, it just comes out as rain. Um, okay. You know, it doesn't stick around unless you heat the planet up. A hot atmosphere can hold more water. Um, and so if you hypothetically heated the planet up, then the atmosphere would be able to hold more of this water vapor and that would boost the heating you already saw. So water vapor can't cause the initial warming. But what we're seeing is it's amplifying the warming of the greenhouse gases we are emitting, like carbon dioxide and, as I mentioned, like methane. Methane is a greenhouse gas which comes from a whole host of processes, both natural and unnatural as well. So, for example, things like cows burping causes methane or landfill uh, rotting, or you also get methane, for example, from growing rice. Uh, that whole host of processes that lead to methane. Um, and methane has gone up hugely in the atmosphere since humans started industrializing the planet. Um, and overall, carbon dioxide is the most important greenhouse gas that we're emitting, but methane is the runner-up. So it's responsible for, I think, around half of the warming that carbon dioxide is causing. Oh, wow. Crikey. Um, so in terms of warming how much warmer is the planet than it was what are, what are we what is our baseline how have we established that and how much warmer are we now i'm aware that i always ask like three questions <laughs> I'll, try, I'll try and remember them all. um so the baseline that climate scientists normally use and they normally use it because it's a, a baseline where we have enough data to be pretty sure what temperature the planet was at is 1850 to 1900. And actually, we heated the planet a chunk before that as well. Um, but that's what's normally used as a baseline by climate scientists and within policy 1850 to 1900. And relative to that, we've heated the planet already by over one degree Celsius, so around 1.1, 1.2 degrees Celsius. Um, although different analyses worked out slightly differently. And now I think it's important to put that in context because maybe like the 400 parts per million it's like oh one degree like yeah, what's all that fuss about yeah about exactly so you know um the the difference in temperature between um what we call an ice age and the warmer periods between ice ages it's around something like five degrees celsius or you know not so different to that if we want to get our act together and we're just to keep burning more and more fossil fuels as quickly as possible this century, which fortunately doesn't look like it's going to happen, we could see around that level of warming within just a century. So this huge heating, which took millennia to take place and reshape the entire planet, we could potentially cram something like that into you know a century or so. And has the planet ever been that hot before? The planet has definitely been that hot before a long, long time ago. But not with us on it, trying to yeah, I, go I to work and do our shopping. Definitely not with us doing our shopping. Um, I can say that for sure. Um, and definitely humans haven't seen the planet um, that hot. In fact, um, our best estimate is the planet hasn't been as hot as it currently is for around 150,000 years. 
And again, because my history and well, maybe together our paleo whatever <laughs> history isn't great. Were humans around last time it was this hot? Ooh, I think last time it was this hot, there were humans and there were also a whole bunch of Neanderthals running around okay. the place. I think so. The, the point is that even if humans were around before and we managed to survive okay and all that sort of thing, all of our infrastructure that modern life and society is dependent upon wasn't around then and isn't adapted to those kinds of temperatures. And and it's it's the it's not only the amount of warming, it's the speed of it and and yeah, the fact that we're used to this very stable temperature and suddenly it's all literally going up in smoke in lots of places. For sure. And I mean Previous natural climate changes, for example, the heating as the world left the, the last ice age, um, caused huge disruption to, um, to, to the human and natural worlds. You know, it wasn't like, oh, that was fine. It's yes, happened yeah. before. It caused absolutely massive disruption. So the idea of having that kind of scale of change, but then many, many times faster at rates that um, you know, the human and natural worlds simply can't keep up with mm. is is really scary, to be honest. Yeah. So are there, air quotes, safe levels of warming? Like we're, we're at 1 to 1.2 at the moment. Like, is, is that OK? Can we stop here? Um, where are we headed? So these things are all relative. I guess the question is safe. For whom? Mm. You know, we've already spoken about the fact that heat waves last year cost tens of thousands of lives in Europe. Well, that definitely wasn't safe for them. Mm. Um, and the hotter we make the planet, the, the more people's lives are affected, the more people's lives are taken because of the changes that we're causing. There isn't a sharp line where things go from fine to fucked, you know. Um, it's a, it's a, a gradual scale from those yeah. two things. Um, what uh, the international community has agreed is that um, we should keep global warming well below 2 degrees Celsius and ideally keep it under 1.5 degrees Celsius. So that's the agreement which is in the Paris Climate mm -hmm. Agreement. And every country in the world, except for the Vatican, is signed up to the Paris Climate Agreement. So this isn't just some kind of abstract thing. This is what the world has said we ought to do to keep ourselves relatively safe. This is an argument that I heard made by, might have been someone on a, like a county councillor or someone like that. And they said, um, and I'm paraphrasing, but, um, well, do you know what? It doesn't matter if it gets warmer in the summer and we have more people dying of heat waves, say in somewhere like the UK in the summer, because actually we have so many more people dying of problems associated with the cold in the winter. So it'll kind of balance itself out. Um, a, that just feels like a horrible argument for anybody who had, you know, who was affected by the heat waves and all those sorts of things. But um, I guess, and I feel really awful asking this, but like, does it balance itself out? So I don't know the statistics specifically for the UK, but, but globally, you're not mm. looking at a balancing out for sure. You're looking at huge swathes of the planet potentially being made uninhabitably hot. Um, you're, you're looking at um, entire countries being wiped out because mm. of sea level rise. Um, and now some people say, OK, but, you know, Canada will become more livable. Um, so firstly, just in terms of land areas, you're not balancing that equation, the amount of land area that's made harder to live in and harder to grow crops in is not cancelled out by what happens, mm -hmm. um, for example, in Canada. Um, 
But on top of that, we've seen how hostile um, global northern countries are to migration. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The idea that I'm just you know, relocating many millions of people would be absolutely fine and not lead to to a rise of um, um, extremist politics within these wealthy countries is, I think, uh, potentially wishful thinking. And in terms of levels of of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, let's say we're at 400 at the moment, what what level of carbon dioxide gives us a, a like a stable climate is there a level that we should be aiming for and can we actively suck carbon dioxide back out so what's great is we know what we need to do to stop the world heating up which is stop emitting carbon dioxide um and And we haven't even covered that what what emits carbon dioxide yeah, well, that's a, yeah, that's a great question. So <laughs> the biggest culprit is burning fossil fuels. So that's things like coal in a power plant, oil, um, so the petrol in your car, yeah. um, gas in your boiler, um, these kinds of things. Um, so that's the main driver. On top of that, we've got what climate scientists call quite cryptically land use change, which basically boils down to things like chopping down trees and destroying natural lands and releasing the carbon which was mm-hmm. stored in them. And and so those are really the culprits which are causing uh, greenhouse gas levels to go up in the atmosphere. And so um, can we, if if we were to make, wave a magic wand and I could, I have my magic wand and we yeah. stop burning fossil fuels and we stop land use change tomorrow, what happens to carbon dioxide levels? So carbon dioxide levels would gradually decrease a little bit and this would stabilise um, the, the world's temperature. So temperatures would, if we stopped emitting carbon dioxide tomorrow, um, I'm actually planning a video on exactly this. It might be oh, really? out by the time the, the podcast Boiler. comes out. What happens <laughs> if we stop emitting? Um, so the answer is a, a bit... So the answer is a bit complicated, but ultimately stopping emitting carbon dioxide means stopping temperatures increasing. Okay. And is that enough or do we need to try and reverse some of these changes? Do we need to try and suck some carbon dioxide back out somehow? Well, I think the crucial thing to mention is that we only have a part of that magic wand. We have a lot of really fantastic solutions to stop ourselves emitting. There's some things that we don't have the the right solution for. There's some things we don't have carbon dioxide free ways of doing them. So for example, uh, steel manufacture, flying, um, although a lot of people are working on these very hard, it seems like it'll be very difficult for us Mm. to have those kinds of solutions by the time we'd need them. And so we would, to get to that zero, need some way of absorbing that carbon dioxide getting rid of that carbon dioxide that we can't stop emitting to get to zero emissions. And that's this, this kind of net zero Exactly. That's the net. The zero is we need to get to zero. The net is, oh, we can't get directly to zero. So we're going to have to do some kind of sucking carbon dioxide up to get to it. Um, And the way net zero is often really used and abused is people say, oh, let's not bother cutting emissions. Let's just do um, the sucking up of carbon dioxide. The thing is, yeah, just plant some trees. Yeah. Um, The thing is, that's a really hard thing to do. I mean, it's okay to plant trees, but we can't plant infinite trees on mm. this planet. Um, and so we really need to kind of turn the tap off yeah. as much as we possibly can before we get the straw out and start sucking up the, the last bit of carbon dioxide that we, we can't turn the t- tap off for. This seems to be what 
governments around the world and maybe especially the current Tory government in the UK are hanging their hats on and fossil fuel companies are like, oh, it's fine. We can do direct carbon capture. Like, what's that? And is it bullshit? (laughs) Um, So I'll answer the second question first, which is (laughs) yes. Um, So direct uh, air carbon capture is the idea of building a machine which can um, suck up a whole bunch of air and then filter the carbon dioxide out of it. um, And then we could bury that carbon dioxide in the ground. It's only something we've relatively recently been able to show works at all and doing it at any kind of meaningful scale that would have any meaningful effect on the atmosphere would be really tough to do and really, really expensive to Mm. do as well. Um, I think it's good that we're researching it. I I think it's definitely worth researching. I think there are better ways of getting carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, for example, planting trees or um, some other technologies which are maybe a bit too um too boring to get into (laughs) um but for example bioenergy with carbon capture and storage um but i think the crucial thing for any of these things is the easiest thing to do is not put the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in the first place you know we don't have really good ways of absorbing carbon carbon dioxide from the atmosphere should absolutely try and get better at that because we're not being very good at doing the easy task Mm. but um as soon as someone says oh we don't need to cut emissions we should just just Mm. suck the co2 back up um that's a good sign uh to get your bullshit detector out (laughs) um and then sort of on a similar theme to this and and we're jumping around a little bit but i've there's a report that um, I saw that the IPCC brought out, so the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, for people who are like, what are all these word- net letters you keep saying? Um, and I think it came out in 2018, and it was looking at sort of three different scenarios for the temperature changes that we might see. And in all of the scenarios, um, we overshot. So we overshoot one and a half degrees. And in a couple of the scenarios, we sort of managed to, to come back to one and a half degrees. And I'm never quite sure how we managed to do that. Is that possible that we could, we've got this one and a half degree limit that we're really theoretically supposed to be working very hard towards. Um, And the concern is that we will overshoot and everything I've sort of heard and seen has said, looking more and more likely that we are going to overshoot one and a half, then the the things that we need to be concerned about how much we overshoot by and how long we stay overshot for. And I'm sort of like, well, how can we un-overshoot? Can we do that? So I think that idea there is that, well, we're going to have to build some kind of technology to suck some carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere to get to that net zero in the first place. And I think the idea is, well, once we have that kind of thing in place, surely we'd want to scale it up to, to bring temperature levels back down. I think, though, ultimately, what you often see in those kinds of uh, scenarios is fairly optimistic in terms of how much and how quickly we'd be able to do those things. Um, And so while I think it's definitely possible to get to to net zero and then to um, actually end up with overall negative emissions to bring the temperatures back down, um, the idea that we could do that at the timescales we really need or that there's a political will to do that, Mm. um, that's something which... I don't want to say it's it's not possible, but I, I would say it's um, it's fairly optimistic. Mm. So how realistic, this is, I guess, the question you probably get asked a lot, how realistic is 1.5? How likely are we to stay 
below 1.5. It's hard to see how what the world is doing today could lead us to keeping warming under 1.5 degrees Celsius, at, at, at least at first. And actually, when the 1.5 degree limit was announced as part of the Paris Climate Agreement, a lot of climate scientists were really surprised because even at the time, some climate scientists were discussing whether limiting global warming to two degrees Celsius was uh, was wishful thinking. Um, fortunately, um, the world has got its act together quite a bit more since then, um, and two degrees is looking keeping warming under two degrees is looking increasingly possible. Um, but one point five degrees is really has always been a very um, ambitious target mm. and it's it's looking harder and harder to stay underneath it as we're failing to reduce carbon dioxide emissions at the rate we, we definitely need to. There's a couple of concerns though, isn't there? Like one is that like we hit 1.5 when everyone goes, oh, we had a good try, didn't we? Like that was, you know, bad luck us. Um, or the other one is that we just ab- abandon 1.5 and just go, oh, well, let's aim for two instead because that feels a bit easier and then overshoot two. Like it feels really difficult to find that balance. It, it's really tough. And I think it, it, it it's a really core way we talk about climate change. We really focus on these limits and you can understand why it's a way of getting the international community to try and work towards something. And it's a way mm. of keeping in mind what we need to do and, having an idea of what is relatively safe but that relative in that phrase in the relatively safe safe is really important there isn't this sharp line between fine and fucked it isn't like we'll pass 1.5 and the world explodes Mm -hmm. and it's not like if we limit global warming to 1.49 everyone's fine and happy um and so either way, whether we miraculously stay under 1.5 or we overshoot it, what we need to do is exactly the same, which is stop the world heating up as quickly as we possibly can. Um, and to do that, we need to stop burning fossil fuels and stop destroying lands as quickly as we possibly can. I love that video you've got, and I'll link to it in the show notes where um, you use the analogy of being punched in the face. And like, it's never too late to stop being punched in the face. So even if we overshoot 1.5, like we can still stop punching ourselves in the face. Yeah, if you're getting punched in the face and someone said, oh, well, we've passed the punch limit now, I'm not going to bother doing anything. I'm just going to keep Well, you're going to need a better friend. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's a brilliant analogy. How, as somebody immersed in this with a really deep understanding of the physics of it and the science and how it all works behind it, and then again with your sort of, I guess, your comms hat on and being more aware of the um, politics and all the other things that interact to lead to climate inaction, how optimistic do you feel? It's kind of a double-edged question for me because uh, in lots of ways, I really understand how serious what we're doing to the planet is and how much more we need to do to protect ourselves and especially the most vulnerable people and most vulnerable ecosystems in the planet. Um, And I think a lot about, you know, my future, my old age, Mm. I think about the old age of of my nieces. Mm. um, And I can definitely see that, yeah, we're not doing nearly enough to to protect all those lives, including my own. at the same time as that, I think about how attitudes were to climate change when I started working on it, which was in 2011. Um, and then Don't it was just this. <laughs> 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 I started when I was seven years old. Yeah. Um, 
I back then it was just like screaming at a brick wall it just felt absolutely helpless um no one was talking about climate change um and uh, the idea then even of having something like the Paris Climate Agreement still seemed like a pipe dream and the idea that countries around the world would be committing to net zero even if those commitments are, you know, a lot of hot air a lot of the time, the idea that anyone would be talking about that and even trying to like posture about climate change. Back then there wasn't really any posturing about climate change because, you know, it wasn't an issue anyone cared about enough. Um, and so these shifts, as well as the incredible shifts we've seen in renewables over the last decade, where they've got just mind bogglingly cheap, um, where, you know, for most of the world is cheaper to get energy out of uh, renewable power than Mm. it is digging up and burning fossil fuels. Both of these things were just unimaginable when I started working on climate change and just give me huge hope, the idea that we could keep that momentum up, which we've been able to, even though we've seen a global pandemic, we've been Mm. able to keep the volume up and keep um, that politics moving in the right direction. Is it going in the right direction as fast as it needs to? Absolutely not. But the fact that we're we're taking steps in that right direction, that people are talking about it and caring about it, you know, that gives me a lot of hope. And that's really interesting, I think, to take that almost sort of longer term perspective on it, because it can be on a day to day level or even a, you know, six months to six month level like looking at the politics that's happening in the UK and around the world it can feel incredibly frustrating and like we're moving in the wrong direction but actually as you said if we take a a longer view over the last like 20 years or so we have moved enormously in that time right I'm super aware of like the hard stop we've got and so this is a question that potentially we need to do an hour's episode on but somebody listening now what 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 do you want them to go and do I think for any of us, there are three things that we can do to to combat climate change. And exactly what combination of those three things or what those three things look like really depends on who you are and what what works for you. But those three things are um, pushing for the structural changes we need to stop climate change. You know, climate change is something that's uh, really caused by the top. It's caused by politics and big businesses. And so taking steps uh, to try and shift those things. Um, For example, getting involved in politics, protesting, contacting businesses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, We've got an election coming up next year in the UK. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. Um, Then there is uh, reflecting on your own emissions. I think we like to say a lot, oh, you know, it's a structural problem. Individuals don't have a part to play in it, but a structure is made up of individuals. Mm. And especially for those of us who live in relatively wealthier countries or who ourselves are relatively wealthy in our communities, you know, it's very, very likely that you emit far, far more than your Mm. your fair share. Mm. Um, And so reflecting on the ways you can address that while also sharing that with the people around you to help create conversations around climate change is really valuable. And that's really the third thing as well, is starting conversations about climate change. One of the biggest problems about climate change is that, you know, it's this huge issue that affects everyone. And so many people just keep shtum about it. Um, and so, you know, it'd be great if there were <laughs> there were more YouTube channels and podcasts about it. But, you know, if uh, your way of talking about it is just bringing it up with your friends and your family or your colleagues at work occasionally, you know, that is also amazing. Not everyone can start a YouTube channel. And frankly, I don't need the competition. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and it just as it can be as simple as kind of, oh, I heard this podcast the other day or I saw this this clip on Facebook shared from this guy's YouTube channel or 
God, the weather's been weird lately. Are you worried about it? Those exactly quite nice, easy, seeming sort of gentle ways to bring what can feel quite an emotive, difficult conversation up. For sure. And I think this idea that we've had for far too long that the only people who can talk about climate change are people like me who've who've studied it in some capacity, I think is absolute bullshit. Um, you know, it, it affects everyone. Um, talk about how you feel, share things that you've heard um, from reliable sources um, <laughs> and, you know, really start those conversations. It's absolutely your place and your right to do it. Amazing. That's an amazing place to stop. Thank you so much for your time, Adam. I know how busy you are and I know all the amazing, wonderful things that you're doing. And thank you so much for your YouTube channel. I use it so much to kind of go and to check stuff and to look at and to to share and things. So um, please keep on doing what you're doing. And um, where can people come and find you? So the easiest place is youtube.com forward slash climate Adam. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. But I, I mean, if you want the best version of myself, go to YouTube. Amazing. You're an absolute superstar. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. How was that for you? <laughs> Isn't he brilliant? What did you learn? I would love to know. As I said in the intro, I'm super aware that for some of you, there might be nothing new in this episode in the way of facts, but hopefully you might be able to take something away in terms of how we talk about the science and that all-important comms piece that we discussed in the episode. Personally, I loved his three points in the answer to the what can we do question, which is undoubtedly something he gets asked a lot. And it was great to hear it so concisely explained. And that all important, I think, focus not just on the actions and the things that we can do to reduce our own footprints, but also really encouraging us all to be more engaged citizens and importantly, to talk about climate more. So what were your takeaways? Any light bulb moments? What are you going to go out and do as a result of this episode? I would love to know. Please do let me know. You can leave a comment on the podcast episode at www.asustainablelife.co.uk forward slash podcast. And here is also where you will find all the links to Adam's YouTube channel and his socials, because please do go and follow him. He is remarkable, um, as well as that being punched in the face video that we talked about. Or you can tag me on social media with your thoughts. I'm at Sustainable-ish on most platforms. Or as ever, please do drop me an email, jen at sustainableish.co.uk. Right then, this week's good news section. I'm sure it will feel very necessary every week, but this week, I don't know about you, I really need to hear some good news. My favourite place to go when I'm looking for good news stories is the very appropriately named Positive News. Please do go and check it out. I will post links to both of these stories, which I found on the Positive News website. Uh, I will post links to both of those in the show notes. So the first one, a green energy boom is keeping 1.5 degrees Celsius in sight. And I quote here from the article, spectacular growth in clean energy is keeping the planet on a slim path to hitting the one and a half degree Celsius target the world's energy watchdog announced this week. The International Energy Agency, you might see that sometimes um, the IEA, updated its benchmark net zero roadmap, which was originally published in 2021. And new findings reveal that despite the energy sector spewing their words, I quite like that, record carbon emissions in 2022, hope lies in the rapid deployment of green technologies. There are legitimate reasons to be cheerful. Hooray, said IEA Executive Director Faith Birrell. The path to one and a half degree target is narrowing on the one hand, but the spectacular increase in clean energy is keeping the door still open. Yay! 
Closer to home in the UK and another story from the Positive News website. Greater Manchester has become the first place in England to take back public control of its buses after 40 years with the launch of the B Network this week. It's hoped that the new network, which includes 50 electric buses, will help reverse the decline in bus travel seen since services were privatised everywhere outside of London in the 1980s. Now, this is exciting stuff and all eyes will be on Manchester as we figure out how we can support and encourage more people to step out of their cars and onto public transport, which will help enormously to bring down transport emissions, which we very urgently need to do. And even closer to home, a good news story from a real-life actual person to highlight the good stuff that ordinary, tired, overwhelmed people are still managing to do. Now, in the Sustainable-ish Clubhouse, which is my membership community, we have a thread every Friday where I ask people to share their wins from the week. It's not only a joyous thread to read, but it's also actually really empowering to allow ourselves just a little minute to reflect on what actually have we done Um, And to congratulate ourselves for that, rather than the usual constant berating of ourselves for all the things we haven't quite managed to get round to. Um, So Vanessa's comment is a great example of this. She said, I didn't think I'd done much until I started making this list. All small, but I'm pleased with them. Helped a friend to make foraged dry flower decorations for her wedding. That sounds absolutely beautiful. Gave the car to my sister-in-law to borrow for a week after she changed jobs and had to give back her company car, hoping we can make it a permanent car share. What a great idea. Watched the True Cost movie. So this is a movie all about fast fashion and the impact of that. And I will link to that in the show notes for anyone who's interested in watching. And then finally, she says, saved some broken solar lights. My in-laws were going to put in the general waste and drop them at the recycling point in B&Q instead. So there we go. What's your good news story? What have you made happen, no matter how big or small this week? Again, please do share with me. I would really love to hear it. So that's all from me. Aside from the usual, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do leave a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts and please do share it with your friends. This is how the podcast will grow and reach more people and hopefully inspire the odd person or two. Have a great week. Thank you so much for listening and I will catch you next time. Take care. 